Tonight we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 36, 37, and hopefully 38. I say that because, well, I advertised it for one, but we've already been through these. And so I'm not going to read every verse of scripture in these three chapters. Um, I say we've already been through them because the Lord has uh, already instructed Moses on the specifications of the tabernacle, the outer courts, the priestly garments. And we get in chapters 36 through 38, we find the children of Israel coming together to build that which the Lord has already given Moses instructions to build. And so this is in some ways repeating some of the things that we've already learned about, quite a bit of it actually, is repeating from different chapters. It could be from chapter 25, 26, chapter 30, uh, as God gave Moses the instructions, the specifications for the tabernacle. And I was thinking about it this afternoon, um, actually this late afternoon, I was mowing my lawn before coming over to the church and uh, not right before but a little bit before and uh, when I'm out mowing the lawn yeah I was thinking and running things through my head and the Lord gave it to us twice this passage of scripture basically describing the tabernacle being made so it must be that he wants us to get this stuff he wants us to have a good understanding of these things also here in Exodus 20 uh, Exodus 36 I believe um, he wants to encourage the body of Christ in the sense of coming together to work together for the glory of his kingdom. As we find the children of Israel doing here in Exodus 36, 37, and 38, they gathered together to do the work that the Lord had called them to do. And some brought the work. And they were able to provide offerings for the work to be Accomplish. Others were actually participating in creating and building and molding and sewing and doing all these wonderful things that God had commanded them to do. So Exodus 36, I titled the overall study, the making of the tabernacle. That's what we're talking about in these three chapters. But in chapter 36, I titled it stirred hearts and verse two is the verse that I chose for our key verse of the chapter. And it says, Then Moses called Biziel and Iholeb, and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. So God gave a call to all the gifted artisans, the Gifted people were to gather together to do the work of the construction of the tabernacle and the outer court and its curtains and the priestly garments and the incense and the oil and all the gifted people gathering together whose heart the Lord stirred, whose heart the Lord put wisdom in. So God gave them the ability to do the work, but also stirred their hearts that they might do the work for the glory of God. So we find the gifted artisans in verses 1 and 2. It says, And Bizael and Aholib, 
And every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. So we've already learned of Biziel and Ahoyelib and these gifted artisans, that they were filled with the Spirit of God. And the head builder, Biziel, and his assistant, Ahoyelib, they gathered together all the people who would do the work of the tabernacle to bring this project to a completion. The tabernacle, the outer court, the priestly garments, the furniture of the tabernacle, all these things brought the people together as God brought other gifted artisans to come alongside. Their hearts have been uh, filled with the wisdom of the Lord. And I believe, and I said this a few weeks ago, that they, the skills that they had learned while slaves in Egypt, now they were able to apply to the work of the Lord. And sometimes that's how it is in this world that we find ourselves in. We can be gifted by God and we can use those gifts and talents apart from God in this world and even develop those gifts and talents outside of the work of God. And then the Lord brings us into faith in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then we can take those gifts that the Lord has given us and redirect them for the work that the Lord now calls us to as believers. And so, verse 2, the gifted artisans whose hearts the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred, they came to do the work. Second Timothy 1, 6, also Paul, in his last letter to the church, reminding Timothy to stir up the gift of God which is in you. So Paul writing this specifically to Timothy, to stir up. Stir up gives us that image of a, a fire that's still smoldering, but the ambers are still glowing, but there's no flame lit up. And sometimes all you have to do is take the poker and move the wood around a little bit, and you can get the thing to flame up, to fire up. And Paul is reminding Timothy, stir up the gift of God. It's there. The ambers are still there. And it was given to you through the laying on of Paul's hands. And he reminds him to stir up those gifts. Sometimes the Lord just simply needs to remind us to stir up the gifts that he's already given us to use for his glory. In Ephesians 4:16, it tells us, from whom the whole body so Christ being the head of his church, we learn that in Ephesians 4, 15. But from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so when everyone comes together in the body of Christ to do their share in the work, the giftings that the Lord has supplied each one of us with it edifies the entire body and these verses are great reminders that to be effective in the work of ministry it involves an entire congregation it's not just the work of few of a few and quite often in many of the churches that's what we find conducting in the churches just a handful of people trying to do the work that God has prepared many to do. And although Moses was a good shepherd to watch over the children of Israel, clearly he was not a gifted artisan. Never do we read. We read of Aaron, 
and throwing some gold into a, a fire and then a calf popping out like he didn't form it with his hands. But apparently Aaron was a gifted artisan. But Moses, we never read of Moses creating, making in this sense. Therefore God anointed Biziel and Aholeb and the other gifted artisans with wisdom and understanding to do the work that the Lord had given Israel to do. And in a similar way, although all churches have been commissioned to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28:19, each church has been given unique giftings with which they are to serve their communities. May we never forget that many hands make light work. And so they each did their work, verses 3 through 7, and I'd already mentioned that I'm not going to read every verse of this passage. We're going to be repeating a bit of these things, but I'm going to read several of these verses. In verse 3 it says, And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Biziel, Aholib, the other gifted artisans, after answering the call of God to make the tabernacle, they began receiving the offerings from the children of Israel for the construction of the tabernacle. In, in addition to making the tabernacle and all its furnishings, the tools, the holy uh, incense, the anointing oil, and the priestly garments, they also would use the daily sacrifices of the people as they came to worship God. They kept receiving these offerings. The people kept bringing offerings to the house of the Lord for the building of the house of the Lord. And an amazing thing happened in this passage. We rarely find it repeated anywhere else in the Bible, nor do we ever rarely find it repeated in the Lord's church that those who were bringing the gifts brought too much and the craftsmen came to Moses and they told Moses, tell the people to stop, verses 4 and 5. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each one from the work that he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses had to make a proclamation for the people to stop bringing their offerings to the Lord which is amazing indeed. Yet Israel was not always so giving. It would be in the days of Malachi, God would remind the children of Israel, Malachi 3.10, to bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this thing, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. The people have been making excuses why they couldn't give offerings to the Lord. And the Lord God in Malachi 3.10 challenged the people saying, bring in the tithes and test me in this thing and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you. That's going to be, as I was just reading this, I'm thinking about uh, the times that are upon us and coming, a recession. Um, they're talking about hyperinflation. Now they're already talking about a recession. And uh, just last year, I, I did a couple of papers on 
in the crash of the market in 2008. I wrote all the way back concerning the Great Depression in another paper that I'd written for school. And um, I have heard of the, the current circumstances that we are in. They have readily been comparing it to and now saying a little bit worse than uh, what happened to us 40 years ago during the Carter administration. And I've even heard them tie things all the way back to the 1930s and the Great Depression. And we don't want to hear that, but what happens if you have back-to-back uh, -back recessions hit, that brings us into a depression. And hopefully we won't come to that place, but it seems like we're being set up for a time like that. And we might find that people in the church will be saying, but Lord, I can't bring the ties into the storehouse. And the Lord again might be saying, try me in these things. Watch and see if I do not provide for you. And so we might be challenged with these very same things. I will say that Malachi 3.10 is often misused by preachers to beat up on their congregations for not giving. While this verse speaks truth, perhaps not in its misuse, God does challenge the people about giving. And although we must each come to our own conclusion about what our gifts and offerings should be to the Lord, remember that God loves a cheerful giver. So whatever we do, let us do it cheerfully unto the Lord. So 8 through 38, they built the tabernacle. And this breaks down into the different sections of the tabernacle. The remainder of this chapter deals with the construction of the tabernacle. And in Exodus 26, Moses received the details of the tabernacle's construction, the specifications, the blueprint, we might say, while he was with the Lord on Mount Sinai. Now they take those specifications and they get to work. I was a builder for many years. Um, given blueprints and originally when i began running work my first job that i ran was in highland park i was 23 years old i was green as could be and uh probably shouldn't have been running to work but i was the guy the guy god put on call for that and originally i was reading the blueprints but then i learned that not only the blueprints the specifications as well and now they're taking the blueprints, they're taking the specifications, the details of how God should say they should be built, and they bring it together. They begin with the fine linen curtains. So what we're doing is beginning with the tabernacle, and we're layering from inside out. And the fine linen curtains would face inward toward the uh, sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and the um, holy place in the tabernacle so moses is laying this out from the inside out the fine linen curtains verses 8 through 13 and we begin in verse 8 it says then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made 10 curtains woven of fine linen thread of blue and purple scarlet yarn with artistic designs of cherubim they made them and then he goes on to talk about the length and the details, how many cubic. And I, I kind of did the math for us on these things to make it a little bit easier for us to give us a better or clearer understanding of it. 
So the design, these fine linen curtains on the inner walls of the tabernacle itself, facing the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, made with blue and purple and scarlet thread, woven in the design of cherubim, of angels weaved into them. And cherubim, as we read in the Bible, they're always associated, often associated with the throne room of God itself. Once we find uh, cherubim, seraphim guarding the way to the Garden of Eden. But other than that, we find them in the throne room of God. And here are these curtains consisted of 10 panels, five on each side. They were joined together by 50 loops of blue yarn that were sewed to each end of each set of the curtains that were coupled together by 50 golden clasps. Each panel was 28 cubics by four cubics. And depending on what that measurement is, a cubic, um, I read from years ago, and it's just been stuck in my head that they believe a cubic measures from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger. And they're saying that's an average of 18 inches. So anywhere from 18 to 20 and a half inches long. And so if using a 18 inch cubic, a foot and a half, it means the curtains were 42 feet by six feet when all put together and assembled. If using an 18 inch, uh, if using an 18 inch, if it's 20 and a half inches, then it's 47 feet, eight inches long by six foot, eight inches. And so the fine linen curtains of blue, purple, scarlet, and the thread, the cherubim, the golden clasp, it reminds us of the inner beauty of Christ. In Psalm 50, verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. But all these things would be only seen by the priests who ministered daily in the holy place and the high priests who ministered once a year in the holy of holies. So the inner working of the tabernacle, the fine linen curtains. Next, we find the goat hair curtains, verse 14 through 18. In verse 14, it says he made curtains of goat's hair. For the tent over the tabernacle, he made 11 curtains. Once again, measuring out 11 panels that were each put together, 30 cubics by 4 cubics, one side consisting of five panels, the other of six panels. They were joined together by loops at the end that were set and clasped together, made of bronze. This time, not gold, but bronze. And there was an extra panel. It was used to create a door for the tabernacle. And so this was a weather-resistant covering of black goat's hair with bronze clasp. It not only hid the inner beauty of the tabernacle, it reminds us that black's goat hair can remind us of the sin that was placed upon Christ himself. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Jesus Christ bore our sins. Jesus Christ, who is that of the inner beauty of God, God's only begotten Son, but he bore our sins and the blackness of our sins, perhaps reminiscent of this black goat hair covering that went over the fine linen curtains of the tabernacle. 
the ram skin and the badger skin. Again, they keep layering the tabernacle. The third layer was made of ram's skin and dyed red and a great illustration of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sin. So we have the black representing our sin. Now the red representing the blood of Christ, putting a covering over our sins. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So verse 19 tells us of these two outer coverings, the ram skin dyed red, and the badger skin gave the tabernacle really a plain appearance. There was nothing spectacular from the outward appearance of this tabernacle. It reminds us that Jesus, while he was in his fleshly form, Isaiah 53, 2 reminds us that he had no form or comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. Why do you think so often they had to have Jesus picked out of the crowd? He looked as if he was a common person. He did not walk around with this glowing halo. <laughs> If he did, they would just say, the guy who glows over there in the crowd, that's the one you're looking for. Now, he looked common from the outside, had no form, no comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. And the frame of the tabernacle in verses 20 through 34, 20 through 34, not quite through the chapter yet, but moving quickly. The frame was upon which the curtains, of course, the skins were hung. They were made of boards of acacia wood, and they were held together by rings and bars and overlaid with gold. The acacia wood, and we find it in all of the tabernacle building, whether making the furniture or these bars and these frames, uh, is a very hard wood, very heavy, indestructible by insects. And so it was perfect for the building of the tabernacle's framework and the furniture of the tabernacle. And the boards measured two feet, three inches wide by 15 feet long. And when you put it all together, we find that the tabernacle was 15 feet high, 45 feet wide. And the west was 15 by 15, that the east walls were left open for the entryway. And so we find that the tabernacle itself, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, the length of the walls, 45 feet, and then the front was left open for the entryway. They were set in silver sockets, silver support stands for the frame, and that silver Stands were made from the atonement money of Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. And God required from every man from 20 years old and up to give a half a shekel, a ransom for himself to the Lord, Exodus 30, 12, a half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, Exodus 30, 13. From 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord, Exodus 30, 14. And so the frame itself rested on the atonement, the ransom money. And in a similar way, the church rests upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In Acts 20, 28, it says, Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock 
which is among the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to the shepherd of the church, which he purchased with his own blood. And so the atonement money, the ransom money, we do not pay money for our salvation. Christ purchased our salvation with his own blood. And the last two things mentioned in this chapter, Exodus 36, the veil and the screen. The veil mentioned in verses 35 through 36, they were made of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine linen, had cherubim woven into it, just like the inner uh, curtain of the sanctuary, this veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were placed, and only where the high priest would minister once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The screen, also made of blue and purple and scarlet thread of fine linen, verses 37 and 38, was the entrance to the holy place. It was how the priest came to the holy place to minister daily. There, the altar of incense, the menorah, the showbread were all located in this opening section of this tent, this tabernacle, where the priest would minister daily. And we've read of bronze, of gold, and of silver. These three metals used in the making of the tabernacle itself. The bronze symbolizing judgment. Silver symbolizes redemption. And gold symbolizing the purity or the glory of Christ. All three speaking of the work of Christ. As he took our sins and the judgment of God upon him for in our behalf, that we might be redeemed, that we might be made pure or made whole. So I like Exodus 36. We have builders. I was a builder uh, for 20 plus years of my life. I still build things, but not like I used to. And often, our hearts may be stirred within us to do a work that the Lord has called us to do. And sometimes we hold back because we think that we're not wise enough, perhaps not strong enough for the task at hand. And we're probably right. However, God isn't looking for the strong or the wise. He's looking for the willing. God will give us the wisdom. God will give us the strength. Sometimes we don't develop the strength until we do the work. It's just how it is. You should have seen this skinny 18-year-old when he began laboring for bricklayers. I didn't have a lot of strength, but within a year of doing that, I got pretty strong. In fact, my grandsons to date cannot outgrip me. The 17-year-old is trying his hardest, but he just can't do it. One day he'll make it there. But uh, last week... My daughter wanted to build a new fire pit barbecue for uh, my son-in-law, Kevin, and um, we plotted it all out. He's here working for the state. He's here in the church, uh, doesn't have to go in. He works from his office in the church, 
And so we timed it with his break time, his lunch time. So after lunch, we went over to Menards. We bought the material. We brought it back. After his break time, uh, his oldest son, all the sons were there, and I helped him put the barbecue, tear down the old one, put the one back together um, and make it anew. And then my middle grandson said, Papa, now I know why your hands are so thick because he picked up those 50 stones probably 200 times. <laughs> he got a taste of the work. And that's how it is. Sometimes we may not be wise enough. Sometimes we may not be strong enough for the task at hand. But God is looking for the willing heart who's willing to do the work to stir us up to the work that he's called us to, and then he'll give us the strength, he'll give us the skill, he'll give us the wisdom, and he'll bring other like-minded people around us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 14, Paul said, first is first a willing mind. It is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So the willing mind, here talking about physical giving of stuff, but that could be true in any situation, the giving of our time, the of our talents, it begins with the willing mind. And Paul goes on to say, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but by equality, that now at this time in your abundance may supply their lack and their abundance may supply your lack, that there may be equality. In this situation specifically, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth who financially, they had excess, but the church in Jerusalem, financially, they were suffering. It was becoming a very difficult time in Jerusalem. And the church was suffering. They were under attack. They were under threat. But spiritually, the church was very strong in Jerusalem. So the church in Corinth had abundance in wealth, but the church in Jerusalem had abundance in spiritual wealth. And he said, in equality, exchanging those giftings to one another, that there might be equality. And much can be accomplished for the kingdom of God when brothers and sisters give of their time, their talent, their resources with willing hearts. If you're faithful to the call that God has placed upon you or the call of a body of Christ that he's given us, it works best when Christ gets the glory as it should be. In 1 Peter 4:11, Peter wrote, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. All. Amen. As in all things. What God supplies, we use our gifts that Christ should be glorified. So in verse 37, chapter 37, I should say, we have the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the table for the showbread, the golden lampstand or the menorah, the making of the altar of incense and the making of the anointing oil and the incense all containing their constructing the specifications given to us here so Biziel again continues to build in verses 1 and 6 I'm going to read Exodus 37 verses 1 and 6 then Biziel made the ark of acacia wood 
two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubic and a half was its width, a cubic and a half was its height. Verse 6, so he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubic and a half its width. So while the tabernacle construction was under the way, Biziel, the lead builder, the supervisor, the superintendent, we might say, the job superintendent, he was gifted by God, filled with the Spirit to lead in the building to help all the other builders, but also he had special giftings and skills. He made the Ark of the Covenant and its mercy seat. So he made the Ark of the Covenant, the box, in which the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna and Aaron's rod that budded would go, and the mercy seat, the lid, the covering of the box. Both of these were described to us in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. The ark and the mercy seat made of acacia wood carved out and overlaid with pure gold. So the mercy seat was a covering or a lid for the ark. As I said, and they were, this is perhaps the most important piece of furnishing. It contained uh, the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded. It was in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies only once a year on the Day of Atonement. In the Old Testament, the mercy seat was a place of propitiation, a covering. It was where the sprinkling of the blood, and the high priest would enter on the Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice seven times upon the mercy seat for himself. Then he would leave the Holy of Holies, get more blood from the sacrifice, go into the Holy of Holies a second time, sprinkle the second seven times for the sins of Israel. So sprinkling the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, are they, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the box, with the blood of the atonement offering. Exodus 30:10. And Aaron, you shall make atonement upon its horn once a year with the blood of the sin offering of the atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it through your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Today, Jesus Christ has become this covering of mercy. It is Jesus Christ who stands between us and our holy God. He is, according to 1 John 4.10, the propitiation for our sins, the covering. Hilasmas is the Greek word, and it, it basically means a covering. Jesus Christ is that covering for our sins. Verses 10 through 16, we have the construction of the table of showbread. In verse 10, he made a table of acacia wood. Two cubics was its length, a cubic its width, cubic and a half its height. And we read about this in Exodus 25, 23 through 30, as Moses, God described it to Moses there on Mount Sinai. As with the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat, the acacia wood formed the base of the table of showbread. It was also overlaid with pure gold. And upon it was placed the showbread or the bread of presence, as it's also called in the scripture, containing 12 loaves of bread that were replaced weekly to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Each Sabbath, new loaves 
were placed before the Lord there on the table, and only the priests were allowed to consume the discarded bread because it was most holy to the Lord. And God said in Exodus 25:30, you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Today, Jesus Christ is that bread of life who stands in the presence of his Father in heaven always. He is the bread of life. Jesus said in John 6, 48 through 51, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. So connecting his body being broken there upon the cross, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who stands in the presence of God his Father forever. And whoever receives Jesus in the bread of heaven, to him is given everlasting life. 17 through 24, we have the menorah, the golden candlestick, that was there in the holy place. So the showbread, the menorah, and the table of incense all in the holy place. Verse 17, he made the lampstand of pure gold. Now this is a pure gold. There's no acacia wood in this. It's solid gold. They have one in Israel that is already made and prepared for the coming temple. I'm assuming they'll use it. That's why they made it. As soon as they build the temple, they're expecting to put the menorah in there. This thing is huge. Um, they have it in a glass case in an underground passage in the old city that you can walk down for that purpose of just seeing the menorah, and it is very large. I don't know if this one is quite that large. It couldn't have been because it wouldn't have fit in the tent. But he made the lampstand of pure gold, of hammered work, he made the lampstand, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, the ornamental knobs, its flowers were all of the same piece. So Biziel was a very busy man, making and fashioning all these golden furnishings of the tabernacle, the menorah described in Exodus 25, 31 through 40. So we've been through this once before. But unlike the other holy furnishings, this one was crafted out of one piece of solid, pure gold. The menorah sat across from the table of showbread, was tended by the ministering priest who trimmed its wicks, resupplied its oil in order that its light would shine throughout the darkness. In my notes, its light would never go out. Of course, when you're trimming the wicks, you have to have a chance to change out and stuff. So it could be that the light was extinguished during the day and at night they would trim the wicks, give a fresh supply of oil, and have it burning continually. That's the desire in Exodus 27:20. 20. You shall command the children of Israel to bring pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And so that pure olive oil... The first crushing, uh, not like extra virgin olive oil, that comes from a more harder crush. This is by a light bruising of the olives, the first oil that comes out. This is what was collected for this lamp. 
In like manner, Jesus Christ is a light of the world that never goes out. In Matthew 7, 2, it tells us on his transfiguration that his face shone like the sun. His clothing became as white as light. His countenance also will shine forth in the new Jerusalem, in the city in Revelation 21, 23, where it'll have no need of the sun or the moon to shine for the glory of God illuminated it and the lamb is its light. So the altar of incense, 25 through 28, he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length it was a cubic, its width a cubic, it was a square. So it could be 18 by 18 or 20 and a half by 20 and a half, depending on the dimension of a cubic. But it was a square. Two cubics was its height. So either 36 inches high or a little taller than that. And its horns were of one piece with it. And so the horns on the altar, you read of whether the bronze altar or the golden altar like this one, they all had horns on the altar. And so the altar of incense was located just in front of the curtain, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And Biziel was careful to make the altar according to the instruction given to God through Moses in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 5. Here was the burning of the sweet incense, a fire of coals that was brought in from the bronze altar to burn the incense there in the house of the Lord. And we find a comparison of the incense uh, in the book of Psalms, also in Revelation, which I'm going to read now, of the burning incense of that of the prayers of the saints. In Revelation 8, 3 and 4, it says, Another angel, having golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. Remember, the tabernacle is a copy of the heavenly. And here we find in the heavenly, there's a golden altar, and there's incense, but here it's mingled with the prayers of the saints, and they ascend before God from the hands of the angel. So then the making, in verse 29, the holy anointing oil, the pure incense of sweet spices, according to the work of the perfumer, close out this chapter Moses briefly mentioning the making of the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices we'll find out later this was described to us in Exodus 30 verses 22 through 38 a lot more detail there one verse here but there would be only like one specific family would have the job of making the showbread of making the holy anointing oil, of making the incense. It was a family recipe, a secret that was kept in this family, passed on from generation to generation. So this is actually a very large deal, would become a very big deal. Traditionally, they're in Israel, but here only mentioned by one verse in verse 29. So the Anointing oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit's anointing upon our lives. Once we are sealed and anointed with the Holy Spirit, we bear the mark of the Lord upon our lives. Without his anointing, there's no unity to bind us together. It's the Spirit of God that binds the body of Christ together, that makes us one. Christ and his work, of course, 
And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Without the redemption of Christ, we have no forgiveness of sin, no atonement. But the Spirit works in a bond of unity and of peace, according to Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, that we are to come in all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the anointing oil uh, symbolizes the Holy Spirit throughout the, both the Old and New Testament, the anointing of the Spirit Himself upon our lives. And of the tabernacle's furnishings, the mercy seat was where the high priest would sprinkle the blood once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Greek word for that covering, the mercy seat, when translated the Hebrew into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament portion of our Bible, they used the word hilasmas. It means to be a covering. It can be translated a propitiation or atonement. And it speaks about the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 2, for he himself is the hilasmas. He is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but for that of the whole world. In chapter 38, moving quickly along, we have in verse 1, he made an altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, five cubics was its length, five cubics its width. It was a square. Its height was three cubics. And the altar of burnt offering, this would be in the courtyard, which you haven't read about yet, but outside of the tabernacle proper, in the courtyard before the entry. So on the east side, the tabernacle would always face, the opening would always face to the east. So on the east side, you would have the altar of bronze, the levir, and then the tabernacle. And so the altar of bronze, this is where the sacrifices were made. Daily, they would offer the sacrifices, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, whatever the people would bring for sacrifices. Worshippers would come to offer a memorial portion of the sacrifice upon the bronze altar. Bronze speaks about judgment. That's why it's found outside of the tabernacle proper. And this is where sin was dealt with on a daily basis. Today, the sacrifice has been provided through Jesus' work on the cross where he was sacrificed outside of Jerusalem proper. In Hebrews 10, 4, 9, and 10, it says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls, of goats, should take away sins. He takes away the first, that is the Old Testament law. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, the new covenant through Christ Jesus. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Today, Jesus has provided that atonement through his work upon the cross. So the levir of bronze, the washing tub for the priest. In verse 8, he made a levir of bronze, its base of bronze, 
bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so this was like a large bathtub, but it was a ceremonial washing. This is uh, the priests would wash at home. But when they were doing ministry, they would uh, ceremonially wash before doing any kind of ministry, before offering a sacrifice, before entering into the temple. We saw when we were in Israel, Lily and I, and those who were with us, we were in an excavation underneath the old city, so dating back to the time of Christ, and they believe it was in a priest house that uh, it reminded me of uh, a baptistry in a church that we don't have one here. I'm pointing back there because that's normally where they're at. I was raised in Baptist churches. Um, Several of them, they always had a baptistry behind the stage. And some of them, you would walk in and walk out the same way. Others, you would walk down one side and walk out the other way. That's how this was. And they said what the priests would do, they didn't wash. They just had the water in there, and they would walk through the water and come up the other way. It wasn't a, a time of bathing, but a ceremonial washing. And this is what the bronze lavere was for, for the washing as they ministered. They would wash their hands and their feet, that judgment would not come upon them. Today we are washed not only by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're daily washed by his word as well. Ephesians 5:26, that he may sanctify and cleanse her, speaking about the church, with the washing of the water by the word. You want that daily washing? Listen to someone teach the word of God. Listen to someone read the Word of God. Read the Word of God for yourself. Sometimes, back in the day when there wasn't podcasts to listen to or uh, didn't have the Internet streaming and stuff, I, I, I think I, over the years, bought at least three sets of CDs through the Bible CDs. I used to drive around an hour one way to get to work when I was a brick mason. And... I would often just either listen to the teaching of the Word of God or just the reading of the Word of God being washed by the water of the Word. So the courtyard, verses 9 through 20. Verse 9, he made a courtyard on the south side. The hangings of the courtyard were fine linen, woven linen, 100 cubits long. And he goes on to talk about this. They made the courtyard of the tabernacle made to the divine specifications that were given to Moses there on the mountain. And it was for an enclosure for the bronze altar and the levir, where the priests ministered daily, where the people were able to come and worship the Lord. And so both the priests and the worshipers came to serve alongside one another, to serve and worship God in the courtyard there, as found in Exodus 20, verses Exodus 27, verses 9 through 19, the detail of this. And so it brought them into worship, into fellowship. Today, there's only one way to God. It comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the door. In John 10, 9, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He'll go out and in and find pasture. Today, Jesus He is that door. 
So the very last details that we are given in verses 21 through 31 is the material list. I was very familiar with this. It was almost a daily, depending on the job I was running, uh, sometimes I would go through material lists daily and make orders, make sure that as a brick mason foreman, one of my jobs was to make sure we never ran out of material. I always had material available to keep the brickies going. That was part of my job. I always needed to have a place for them to go to work, prepared, ready to go, scaffolding built, stocked, ready to go. But if I didn't get the deliveries in a timely fashion, I'd have my bricklayer standing around, and that was a no-no. So we have a material list, and you can read through it if you would like. I'm going to summarize it for you. It's verses 21 through 31. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So you had Aaron's son, Ithamar. He was taking inventory making the ta of the making, the material used for making the tabernacle, its furnishings, its accessories. It was oversaw by the Levites. They compiled this inventory. Bizael was the master metalsmith, the superintendent of the whole job. His assistant, Aholib, was the master engraver, designer, and weaver. The material list consisted of a little over of a ton of gold, verse 24, almost four tons of silver, verses 25 through 28, about two and one-half tons of bronze, verses 29 through 31. The silver was used in the tabernacle's construction. It came from the ransom offering, as we already looked at, where they collected a half a shekel from every male 20 years old and above. And the number of those men were 600,000, 600,000, 3,550 adult males. So well over a half a million men. The bronze reminds us of where sin was dealt with. The silver reminds us of the atonement that is needed. And the gold reminds us of the purity and the sprinkling of the blood by which today atonement is made through the blood of Jesus Christ. And close out. Jesus was, he is to this day, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Paul would say in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ bore our sins then upon the cross 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, having died to sins, that we might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have a right to enter into fellowship with God. Hebrews 4.15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My question, maybe for those who are listening on the radio, maybe you're watching through social media, maybe you'll hear this message at a later time. Have your sins been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ? Let's go ahead and stand together. Here on Wednesday evenings, we've been running through. It's been a while, I think, since I've done this, but the ABCs of salvation, the atonement is so important. The A stands for admit. In order for us to apply the blood of Jesus Christ, we have to admit that we are sinners. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to admit to God that we are sinners. The B is for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension into heaven. Receive that gift of salvation. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to believe in the work of Jesus Christ. And the C is for confess. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Share that faith with others. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For whoever, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here tonight, of course, you have questions regarding faith. I'm here to talk with and pray with you. If you have questions, you're listening on the radio, through social media. Maybe you hear this at a later time. Please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. This coming Sunday, we're going to continue our journey. The chronological journey through the Gospels, we are coming to Lesson 20, and we're going to talk about the New Testament Passover from John's Gospel, Chapter 5, beginning in verse 24, I believe. It's not in my notes. Verse 24. I think that's correct. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night and these chapters. Lord, such detail and given to us twice in the book of Exodus. Lord, I do not believe that you repeat yourself for no reason. And one of the great things that I learned from this is not just the material used, the bronze, the gold, the silver, and how they distinctly fit with the atonement work of Christ upon the cross. Also, Lord, how the body came together to do this work. Today, Lord, we pray that our church would continue to come together, to be filled with wisdom and knowledge, to do the work that you've called, that we would have willing hearts, willing hearts to give, to provide for the ministry and the work of ministry, willing hearts to build, to gather together, to do the work of ministry. So bless us, Lord. If there are those who 
are sick and in need of healing touch. Those, Lord, who don't know you as Savior or need to return to you, bring them back. Bring them to repentance, even this hour. Those, Lord, who just want to serve you, maybe knowing, Lord, you've called them to serve, but they've never taken that step of faith, maybe tonight you're encouraging them to take that step. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and that he would keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.